You are listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, where it's all about responding with confidence to the legal, financial, and personal challenges created by disability, unexpected illness, or simply aging in general. Join us weekly as elder law attorneys Tim Takis, Barbara McGinnis, Chris Johnson, and other members of the Takis McGinnis Elder Care Law Team talk about the tools, techniques, strategies, and services that will make the elder care journey easier for everyone involved. Get ready, because aging starts now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number 88 of Aging Starts Now. I'm Barbara McGinnis, Certified Elder Law Attorney and Partner at Takis McGinnis Elder Care Law. Today, we're talking about the differences between a power of attorney and a conservatorship. Joining me for the discussion is fellow partner and Certified Elder Law Attorney, Tim Takis. So, Tim, what's the difference between a power of attorney and a conservatorship? Well, the basic difference is, is that one of them, the conservatorship, is court-supervised administration of a person and of the person's property. Or sometimes it's, sometimes it's either, sometimes it's both. So, essentially, a, a conservatorship uh, involves a court a durable power of attorney does not. That's really the essential difference. And that court, but but the court appointed authority, I mean, we can't really stress enough the fact that it's not just appointed authority, but like you said, it's supervised authority. So almost everything you, you do for that person or with their property involves a step of going back to court and asking for permission, right? Exa- I mean, exa- exactly. And that's what we, we, we tell people all the time, that if they don't have a durable power of attorney, you know, then essentially what they're doing is they're allowing the court to decide who, you know, who takes care of their mother. It, it, by, that, by that lack of planning, by that not getting a power of attorney in place, so it's there and ready to be used when it's needed, you are just guaranteeing your, your loved ones to have a, the most difficult time that you could create for them in a way. Because not yeah. only are they taking care of an older person or a person that needs to be taken care of, but they're having the hassle factor of going to court dealing with attorneys, sometimes multiple attorneys. Right. And it's expensive, or it's yes, at exactly. least more expensive than just having a power of attorney in place. Right. All right, so that's all the negative stuff. Yes. What's some of the positive things about having a conservatorship? Well, sometimes a conservatorship is needed, and it may be because the person is what we call maybe an unsupported elder. You know, so or, or an unsupported anybody, for that matter, where they do not have somebody uh, that can make decisions for them. Uh, and then under those circumstances, uh, uh, a court will appoint somebody. And often that person that's appointed is a, uh, a professional conservator or a professional guardian, depending upon what state that you're in was, is how they're termed. But essentially what that person does is that the person that's appointed by the court you know, has has a duty to act, uh, has a fiduciary duty to act on behalf of the person that they're working for. 
you know, and so that's, that's why you have, uh, you know, people that are, you know, literally public guardians or they're called here in Tennessee where they are employed by the state, you know, and, um, you know, and they account to, to the court as to what they are able to do and not able to do and should do for this person, you know, who, who needs it. Now, a conservatorship is also needed. Um, let's assume, you know, there is a durable power of attorney in place, you know, the, so, so the, 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 the person signed a durable power of attorney, appointed a child or other family member or somebody that they, they, they trust. Well, maybe the person that they appointed the, as the attorney, in fact, turns out to be uh, non-communicative or worse, uh, you know, is, abu- is, is neglecting or uh, abusing their authority. You know, then maybe a court should step in and a conservator be appointed under those circumstances. Or let's say the person that is that's that's made the power of attorney, they've appointed somebody, uh, and uh, notwithstanding that they've appointed somebody, the person who was the the person who is the 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 the, the principal, the the person that made the power of attorney, has I'll just refer to it as let's say that person went off the deep end, you know, and was doing inappropriate things was becoming an active danger to himself or herself and others. You know, those are things that really powers of attorney aren't really very good at those things. Right. At the end of the day, it's a piece of paper and it's an agreement between two people. It's shared authority. Mm -hmm. So if you're off the deep end person, kind of proverbially thumbs their nose at your power of attorney and says, I don't care what you say. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. If it's essential for their safety and well-being, maybe then a conservatorship. It's a heavier, yeah. It's it's a heavier stick, a bigger stick. But sometimes it it's what's needed for a variety of reasons. But it shouldn't be needed for a failure to plan. Right. Right. Exactly. That's such a disappointment. Yeah. Because really, what happens in a conservatorship or guardianship? You know, when a, when a court appoints a guardian or a conservator for somebody, it's really because the person needs the protection. And this is basically how the Tennessee statute says the person needs the protection, supervision or assistance of the court. You know, and even under those circumstances, the conservatorship under our conservatorship law here, that conservatorship should be the least restrictive on the person's autonomy and liberty to make decisions for himself or herself. Uh, that certainly wasn't the case back when I, when I first started practicing law in 1980, conservatorships were all or nothing. You e- either a person should, a conservator was appointed or one was not. And the conservator basically had what's what we call, what would re- was referred to as plenary authority to act on behalf of that person, which basically means all the rights of that person were taken, essentially were taken away, invested in the conservator. That's probably less likely or less, that, that probably happens much less often now in Tennessee, but I'm sure it still happens in many courts because, you know, the, there's, there, there's, that, there's that whole thing hanging on that people will say, well, if you're an old person, 
Yeah, and you can't make decisions for yourself. We're going to just let this other person take all those de- decisions, make all those decisions. We we don't do a lot of conservatorships. We we have a handful of conservatorship cases. So yeah. I, I'm I'm speaking from that limited base of experience, but I've really not seen um, a lot of crafting of those rights. You know, like oh, this right should apply or this right shouldn't apply. It, you know, I've seen more of the judges looking at, you know, is it warranted to have person and property or is one or the other needed? Mm-hmm. Um, seems like th- there is a division uh, of authority that could get appointed. Yeah. But um and then the other thing is the whole idea of court supervision. And sometimes, and we, we do hear about this a, a good bit, where courts kind of lose track of people. They do not right. demand the annual accountings or the annual status reports that, that are uh, you would think are required. Some counties are very diligent about that. Like Davidson County has a very right. good system, and they're very diligent about that. Mm-hmm. Most of the yeah. other counties are a little more hit or miss, it seems. Yeah, whether they send those letters or not, or what they do if, uh, if the person doesn't respond, you know, do they send out an order of show cause or something? But it is kind of interesting, you know, your your observation, which I think is a good one, about you know the courts are often not they're they're not going to be maybe very diligent about. Uh, crafting an order that that limits uh, the, the the court's authority or the guardian's authority, you know. And sometimes I wonder if it's a, like a natural human tendency that, well, uh, I don't want to be, you know, if I'm a judge, I don't want to be on the front page of the newspaper, you know, and where it says basically says local judge appoints conservator for a person that turns out and kills somebody, you know, or something like that, you know, and then people start asking pointing fingers at the, at the judge and wondering, why did you allow this to happen? Yes. You know, that sort of thing. So, Oh, there is new, uh, there is conversation about some conservatorship training or training for the conservator mm-hmm. prior to issuing letters. And it would be um, issuing the letters of conservatorship. So, right seems like that would slow down the emergency conservatorship process, but I'm sure there'll be a way to fast track that education. Sure. Um, I think that would be a good idea because mm-hmm. that would lessen the conservator's dependence on legal counsel. So in theory, decreasing the cost burden uh, for having such a, uh, a form of authority. Mm-hmm. You know, another negative though, I, I just now thought of this as as we're talking they're really sort of hard to get rid of too i mean once a person may need a conservatorship say there is a psychotic episode or or whatever some sort of emergency situation and then trying to move from the conservatorship towards um just working with the power of attorney it it can be done it can be reversed But it's a little difficult to prove that we're uh, now able to work well under a power of attorney, right? I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's also part of like maybe the natural human tendency where a judge is going to go, well, there must have been re- the reason for this conservatorship in the first place. So what's changed? You know, and then you have a judge, you know, then the judge says, well, why don't we just take the safest course here? Because this doesn't seem to be hurting this person right now. Right. You know, that sort of thing. You know, now, you know, we, we don't, I, I'm, I'm sure probably for many of People, our, our listeners are thinking about, well, what about Britney Spears and all this? You know, that's needless to say a high profile case, you know, which certainly none of us really know all of the details on that. But exactly. So, and, and it could, I mean, I'm not saying this is the case because I've not really been following it closely, but y- you could envision someone having mental health difficulties related to. Um, substance abuse or yeah. some sort of addiction disorder, once that's treated and resolved, that could be, you would think that would be grounds for terminating a conservatorship. Yeah, exactly. Because I was, you know, I was thinking about the same thing is, is that under what circumstances would a conservatorship, you know, terminate? And one of them was like you mentioned is, is that you have a, you have a, you know, I mean, uh, the obvious one would be is let's say that the person, you know, is in the hospital and is in a coma and the court appoints a conservator for that person. Well, if the person comes out of the coma and is just fine, then what do you do then? You right. don't keep them in a conservatorship. Um, you know, the, so it's the same thing with substance abuse and other things that, you know, mental health issues, you know, where once the impediment is gone, then there's no reason to keep the conservatorship in place. So let, let's do just a like a basic timeline of, of what a conservatorship steps are involved for our listeners before we wrap up. Usually it's the person, a person being concerned about someone else. They come to an attorney to say, how do I get authority to be able to act for this person? Right. Then the attorney determines capacity or lack of capacity to execute a power of attorney uh, might be a starting point here. And then there's documents we call pleadings that are submitted to the court along with a physician statement. And here's a, a tricky part where you're trying to get information about we inventory their stuff uh, in a mm-hmm. sort of a loose fashion of essentially how much money do they have and what, where is it kind of thing. And we submit that to the court. Then pretty much the first step the court's going to make is appoint a guardian ad litem, which in Tennessee is another attorney. So now we're up to two attorneys involved. Yes. And that attorney is not really representing either party but is the independent eyes and ears. I hear Judge Kennedy say that all the time, the independent eyes and ears of the court to make a fair term, uh, report for the judge to help make a decision. If the person says, I don't want to be in a conservatorship, then you might have an attorney ad litem appointed and we get into contested hearings. But Right, and now we have three lawyers. Now mm-hmm. we could have three lawyers involved. Yeah. Um, so it may be contested, Likely it's not going to be. And then evidence 
presented to the court that this is a fit person to be appointed conservator, and these letters are executed. So that's that's getting your authority page so that right. when you're dealing with third parties, they can trust that you have the legal authority. You have the uh, because it's substantiated by this court document. Then inventory accountings uh, submitted subsequent a property management plan if there is property to to be managed, and then annually an accounting right of how the money's been spent over the over the year, and then an annual status report. What's the condition of the person? Where are they living? Any change in circumstances? I guess in theory, we should be looking to see if there's an opportunity to reduce uh, the oversight or create something less restrictive, but at mm-hmm. least so that the court can keep account of where the, where the, the ward is. Right. Or could be more, more restrictive depending upon what the circumstances are. So, yeah. But I would say also, I'm just, you know, because your, your comment about, um, you know, how these things maybe often go is, is that the person goes to a lawyer and says, I want to do estate planning documents. Uh, and the lawyer makes an assessment and says, I don't think this person is, uh, has, is capable of, of understanding what they're doing and, and say, recommending a conservatorship. Uh, in Tennessee, and I think of probably about everywhere else, capacity is presumed or should be presumed. Uh, and, and I would say that if a person was in that situation, um, you know, that, that the lawyer said, I don't think you have capacity, you might want to get another opinion on that. Right, because of just the uh, severity of that decision, of the outcome. If, for an attorney to say, there is not capacity here, it could lead to this this a conservatorship it's very restrictive so right. getting a second opinion is not a bad idea because yeah, like, i uh, exactly i mean i've heard lawyers that you know and this has been a while since i've basically heard thing like this but i've heard lawyers say that if you have a diagnosis of alzheimer's disease the lawyer would say well i'm not going to do a power of attorney you know and then there are you know and there are certain members of the of the, the public that would say, oh, well, yes, so, Mr. So-and-so, I'll, I agree with you. I guess we need to get a conservator for my mother. You know, and then, of course, it, and it just so happens, it's the, the lawyer that says that he won't do it will actually do the conservatorship. You know, right. so that's always one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons why you should probably at least get a second opinion. Right. Right. And also remember that it's not a doctor, you know, a doctor's diagnosis is not dispositive. Doctors don't determine legal capacity. Judges do. Lawyers and judges do. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Take Us McGinnis is a life care planning law firm helping families respond to the legal and financial challenges caused by chronic illness or disability of an elderly loved one. Join us next week for another episode of Aging Starts Now. 
thank you for listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast. For more information about today's show, visit tn-elderlaw.com, click on the free resources tab, and then click on Aging Starts Now. You'll find the show notes there. And while you're at it, why not check out all the free resources available at tn-elderlaw.com? Document downloads, the Tagus McGinnis blog, educational videos, informative articles, helpful links, a TV show, and more. It's all there, free for the taking. If you enjoy listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave us a review. It's easy to do on whatever app you use to listen. We would love your feedback on the show. Aging starts now. We'll be back next week with more candid discussions about challenges created by aging, disability, and unexpected illness.